0: It's the Parade of Horribles podcast brought to you from the New Ireland section of New Albany, Indiana, and uh, here I am the host, and you were right about that awkwardness bit. Now, see, you said it, and you jinxed me. Yeah. We were talking before the show about how we have to edit out all of my awkwardness out of this stuff but that's not true but yes it is I've just at least it's not true. on
1: video <laughs> just think about that
0: yeah i know well sometimes i know that's because martin uh won't do the video yet um so anyway no anyway no it's probably a good thing because uh, then people can't see my golden girls shirt that i'm wearing uh anyway <laughs> yeah, i'm shirt. dan cannon and this i'm joe is, Dunman. yeah i was gonna say that thanks uh but because i knew that that's one of the things that I know about this show. But These I don't are the know kinds of parts we edit out. So so I don't, I don't know very much else, but um, our guest today does. She knows all kinds of things because she does everything. Um, and she's brilliant, and she's a genius, and um, we're lucky enough to have her here. And I don't know how long we can keep her, so I guess we better start asking her questions. This is the great uh, Vanessa Cantley. Trial lawyer extraordinaire, um, entrepreneur, or do you have to say entrepreneurs? For for women, is that is that a thing that people know, say? Is, is I'm okay
2: a, with UR. yeah. UR? yeah you're I'm okay UR. with UR? She's okay with <laughs> UR. Hey, She's an <laughs> UR. She's pro ur I am.
0: Uh, I don't know what all do you do. You're you're a, um, and that probably translates to over the years being a bazillion dollar advocate.
1: Yeah, one on of the short. few attorneys who still does
0: trials at all. Right. Really, so right. how many trials have you done in your career, Vanessa?
2: Oh goodness, somebody asked me that not too long ago. Uh, probably 15 or 16 um civil trials just don't happen they don't happen that much they just don't happen that much and i you know for a while there it was two or three a year and then you kind of start trying your way out of trying cases yeah because when you're successful at it then things resolve so what i I went to law school to do i'm not able to do so much anymore i may get one a year now it's
0: the problem that afflicts all civil trial lawyers Um, but you must have hit some like some pretty major home runs in those fifteen or sixteen. Uh, can you relate some experiences from from those trials?
2: Yeah, my first trial was in Adair County, Kentucky. Um, I represented a dairy farmer there who had his leg severed off below the knee as a result of a defective um, farm machinery product, and that verdict was six point two million for him, which sounds like a lot. A lot of that was punitive damages against the companies designed to punish them for their pretty egregious conduct in the case. Um, But quite frankly, a lot of that in compensatories was what allowed him to keep his farm. I mean, he really, he he bought his farm at the age of 18. He had a wife and three young kids, and he would have had to hang it up had it not been for that verdict and the recovery. Um, He was able to keep his farm, to get help, to pay for help to keep his farm. So that was... A big deal for me as a brand new lawyer, as a young lawyer, to to see something like that happen, it changed the course of my career, really.
0: Yeah. No, that's amazing. So so is that the kind of work that you have been mostly focused on, or what is your practice centered on?
2: Yeah. You know, it's always been representing the victim of some sort of injury, whether it be uh, physical, emotional, um, financial. I've always represented the person. I, I did a little stint before I became a lawyer as a clerk at the largest defense firm in the region. Um, which was a nice summer experience, but I knew that that was not in my heart, that that was not what I was going to do every day. And uh, I was fortunate enough my last semester of law school to to get a job because I worked through law school um, with a plaintiff's lawyer and on the uh, Catholic sex abuse cases. And I was very heavily involved in, in those and saw the very profound impact that Process had on those people, and knew that that's what what I was meant to do. So over the years, I've I've taken cases like that where I've represented injury victims of defective products, nursing home abuse and neglect. I've tried those cases. I've tried brain injury cases for trucking and car wreck victims. Um, I represented uh, a, an adult, you know, exotic dancer in a in an assault case against her former boss that nobody wanted, but um, on principle. I felt like she needed to have her day in court and, and took that case when no one else would. Um, I I have a, a case right now at the Supreme Court waiting on an opinion where I represented a, a family of a 13-year-old boy who committed suicide after some pretty relentless bullying in school. And that's a very novel area of the law right now. And, um, and that's a case that I took uh, for that family uh, pro bono. And hired the best experts in the country, flew all around and, um, and it, it didn't make a difference cause we got summary judgment. We got kicked out, <laughs> but we're hoping to stay alive through the Supreme court's ruling. So Very good. a little bit of everything. So
0: representing, representing people against power, people,
2: right? people against, against the powers that be. Yeah. yeah. I
0: like it. Yeah. So you're based in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. Your practice is based in Louisville, which is an urban area for people listening that may not know. Um, if you but you're out in the state, I a mean, lot. you talk about a Dare County, you talk about you know, Murray, you, you, you are Lexington. yeah, you're out um, yeah. all over the place, right? Yeah. And so how do you find that it's different to approach a jury in an urban area versus a rural area?
2: That's a good question. And and again, um, for example, I tried a case a little over a year ago in far western Kentucky in Murray and um, go racers. Right, exactly. And there was some concern about the amount of money we were asking for in compensation, it being seven figures, and that because in that part of the state, salaries and hourly wages aren't really that high and that that might be seen as being greedy. And um, so we did some focused grouping, and we, we actually found out that that really wasn't so much a concern um, that, again people want to do the right thing. And if you're presenting evidence in in a certain way, then usually you're going to get people to listen to you. And if it's a fair and just verdict, then it's going to be a fair and just verdict. But you have to figure that out. You've got a focus group. I mean, my biggest um, advice, p- piece of advice to to lawyers trying cases in any jurisdiction is you've got a focus group there because you are going to find some local idiosyncrasies that you may not know about. Um, and I know you've tried some cases out there and and have had some hostility in certain um, with certain issues you've had in your trials that I've sure, read yeah. about. Uh, and, you know, for example, I, I didn't know this, but I'm representing, have represented a, a guy who is in the reserves. And as part of his assignment, staying in the reserves, he goes out and does some... Um, Rooting out of marijuana fields, okay, and um and I and I thought that was to me just my gut reaction is well that's a good thing right he's part of was in the military and is is in the, is a reservist he's continuing to take assignments and this he's trying to rid the county of drugs right that's a good thing and what I didn't know but found out through focus grouping is that a lot of local citizens are very hostile. To that project. Um, yeah, he's
1: anti farmer, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah, and well, so, and I, and I and I didn't know it. I, yeah. And I would not have known it but no, for I that focus that. grouping. Yeah. No, so, I mean, somebody's
1: said, okay. planting and growing the marijuana <laughs> money off it, right? So it sucks when it gets
0: burned up. But you said something interesting. You said that, that the amount of money you found at the end of the day as a result of that focus grouping didn't really matter. And that that defies conventional wisdom to me. You know, because I always, I mean, if if you, I mean, how do you approach that if you have a bunch of people that think, all right, well, you know, $50,000 is more money than I've ever seen in one place at one time, yeah. you know, and so that should be more than enough to compensate this guy for losing his leg. Right. Right. For the rest of his life. Sure. And I think that is where lots of juries, I mean, you know, conventional wisdom would tell us that that's where a lot of jurors get stuck. Um yeah, how, they, do you, how do you convince them that six million dollars is the right amount?
2: They or? do, and there. Are, gosh, there are plenty of books written about this, and CLEs and trial lawyers much wiser than I who've talked about this. But just as a little example of, of, of some things that I talked to the jury about um, is, you know, we we value things as as humans. Um, now we value everything. I mean, there's. Their uh, professional basketball players are making millions of dollars a year to play a sport. Um, we've got the Derby coming up next week, and and these thoroughbreds sell at the Keeneland sales for millions of dollars, um, a piece of art that is completely subjective. I wish I could appreciate art. I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you've got a painting you know that sells for millions of dollars, and that's something that you hang on your wall. Um, I argue that that the value of a human life, of human health, of one of our own is at least worth the price of something you stick on your wall and look at. Um, and those are just some things that I talk about. I do it much more eloquently when I'm in the courtroom. But but those are some things that, that I use to get jurors thinking about it's value. Not,
1: it's and, not just about the injury either. It, it helps to have a really heinous wrongdoer as well, right? And if you can point out somebody who really screwed up and hurt somebody, that helps tremendously i assume
2: there's no doubt and and my my longtime mentor gary johnson from eastern kentucky uh, was the first to tell me that conduct drives damages um you have to have bad conduct typically somewhere to really get a significant verdict right um and that can be bad conduct from the defendant usually, but it, believe it or not, it can also be bad conduct from the defense lawyer or the defense expert. And so uh, my, my biggest verdicts, I, I would love to take credit for them all myself, but my biggest verdicts have had assistance uh, with bad conduct in one of those shapes or forms. And, and, and in one trial, it really was the defense lawyer who I think tipped me over the edge with the case. Um, which you don't usually think about, but it matters.
1: Right.
0: Have you had any any particular challenges, um, especially getting out in the state, uh, because you're a woman trial lawyer?
2: Yeah. You know, when I first started, I, I I tell a story about that case, the Adair County case that I tried, and I came onto that case very late. I was 27, 20, maybe I just turned 28, Um I took a couple years off between college and law school to work, and um, so I wasn't—I didn't do the traditional track. And I, I was young, so twenty-seven or twenty-eight, and I came into the case just to try it. And I remember—I tell the story when I, the judge said, um, turned to my co-counsel and said, "You know, Mister So and So, are you ready to give your opening statement?" And I stood up and said, "You know, may I proceed, Your Honor?" And he looked at me and the entire defense side of the room, which consisted of two male defense lawyers, two male corporate reps, two male insurance adjusters, <laughs> all looked at me uh, like I was an alien. And... Um, do you, you
0: think that was because you it, were it, a woman or because you were so young or some combination? It may be, a- maybe
2: a combination, maybe a combination, um, but but it was certainly it was palpable like the shock and the um and the well just the shock well, of that happening she she yeah is. right mm-hmm. um and so i you know, i was told uh, this came up during the last election with the jokes about the pants suits and hillary clinton and i joked that i only own one pants suit um that I bought that first year out of law school and I was told never to wear it in court by a longtime uh, mentor and friend said you just don't you don't wear pants out in the state in the courtrooms and I I thought okay well I don't want to put I, I can't believe I'm being told that in, <laughs> in this day and age but I certainly don't want to put my client in a in a bad situation because his or her lawyer isn't conforming to local standards. I'll, I'll bite my tongue. Yeah. I'll Cause that
1: heat comes down, not just on you, but on the abso- person you represent. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's abso- complicated. Absolutely. Yeah. It
2: is complicated. I've had, I've had really unfortunate dealings with um, opposing counsel. I had, I had a, an old um, three piece suit wearing, defense lawyer uh, f- throw a file at me in a deposition and get nasty with me. And I just very politely asked him if he wanted to step outside and he, <laughs> and he, well, well, what for? And I said, well, you know what for, let's, let's step outside and settle this issue.
0: Not to fight a duel. Uh, to, not, not a duel. No,
2: but things like that. Of course I've had to, I've had to deal with things like that over the years. Um, it, it's I imp- hear the
0: craziest stories. I mean, from from anybody, you know. I, I I mean, as far as like by and large, when I talk to lawyers, I hear the craziest stuff from women lawyers uh, women. Fly absolutely flyover states. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, right. well,
1: yeah. Every every woman lawyer I've ever practiced with has a long list of of horrible situations she's been put in by male oppo- opposing counsel or judges, judges or somebody.
2: Yeah, yeah. It it really is. It's it's something that I know y'all don't have to. To think about, thankfully. Um,
1: I'm totally incompetent, and people treat me with respect all the time. So, <laughs> Yeah. No, he's right, though. He's totally, totally incompetent. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, you know, and then and it's not just opposing counsel, too. When you think about, um, I, I use, a I hire a lot of experts because of the types of cases that I try. I have to have a lot of experts, medical experts. Um, technical experts and a lot of those experts um, are male and and I I've also told the story of of not not long ago hiring a medical expert in the south and flying down for his deposition and to prepare him and as part of what I asked him to what the defense asked him to bring was his billing statements they want to know how much he charges me for his work and and I asked him to show me his most recent bill, and he slides it across the bar where we were having dinner. And, and I looked at it, and perhaps he saw the shock in my face. I didn't realize he had spent quite so much time and quite so much money <laughs> uh, working on the matter, which was fine. But when he saw my uh, eyes sort of deer in the headlights, he um, he, he, you know, he took it upon himself to to reach over and and um, and place his hand between my legs and and say that if the bill was um, was too high, that we could work out an arrangement.
1: Wow! And um,
2: and you know, it was. It, <laughs>
1: and so you just, stabbed him to death.
2: <laughs> well, you know, that's funny because um, it's not funny actually, but it is funny uh, that you know, it's one of those situations where uh, at this point I'm a late late thirties year old woman um, uh, certainly have gone round and round in and out of the courtroom with people. I've protested, organized protests. I've testified in the legislature. I've been in battle in a lot of different situations. And that was one where in a split second, you know, my, I was so shocked by it, but, um, but my first real thought was of, my client at that in that case, I represented a the the mother and father of a nine year old girl who was killed as a result of a misdiagnosed migraine that turned out to be um, um, encephalomyelitis. and uh, she died. And and the expert, my expert, the one who did this, uh, I had searched high and low for someone who had the expertise in this particular illness. Um, to agree to serve as my expert. And it's a small field, and it took me a long time to find this person. And he, on paper, his pedigree was perfect. He mostly testified for defendants. Everything about him was perfect on paper. And he was set to be deposed the next day, and we were set for trial very shortly thereafter. There was no way I was getting another expert. There was mm-hmm. no way I, that this case was being tried, and this was my person. And so in that second feeling um just humiliated and angry and you know shamed and and all these things what it all boiled down to was I, I have a nine-year-old girl who's dead and this is my guy and I would love to have stabbed him like you said <laughs> I would love to have done a number of things and instead what I did was very uh, quickly and firmly remove his hand and slid the bill back over along with a binder that I had prepared for him indexed and tabbed and said I need you to study this tonight and we're finished and I got up and left and that was it and I I saw him at the deposition the next day we didn't exchange any pleasantries he testified um and I actually rode to the airport with my opposing counsel, who was very, uh, a very good friend in that case. And that was it. And fortunately, wow. that case resolved, and I never had to see that person <laughs> again. But yeah. but those are things that, you know, clearly, had I been, and obviously, if I'd have been a guy, that wouldn't have happened. But, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, those look, are things that people don't realize that do happen. Look, and I mean, and as women, we have to balance the protection of ourselves with the protection of a, of a client. And it's usually the latter that gets the, gets the nod.
0: I I mean, I'm telling you, it's something that we, and we've gone down the rabbit hole here because that's not Mm -hmm. what I brought you here to talk about, but good job. We we could could do three shows on this. (laughs) I'm glad we did talk about it. I mean, litigation folks is, is hard. Yeah. It's not easy or what I would call necessarily fun, at least not all the time to be a litigator, you know, um, but this is stuff that even with all the crazy stories that we hear from our women colleagues it's something that, that male lawyers it's something that I take for granted i mean you know it's 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 just yeah. something that we totally overlook Never we, have to we encounter don't have to deal with it ever, we don't have to deal with it ever so um, so let's talk about tort reform so tort reform is something that we've heard a lot about in Kentucky this last session. It's something that we hear a lot about in Indiana and nationwide. So what is a tort and why does it need reforming? <laughs> so, I mean, the first than two
1: semesters. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell right.
0: us what a tort is. Okay. Yeah, so, so, so no, I mean, you know, fr- okay. first lead off by saying that mostly what you deal with uh, for those of you non-lawyers out there, I mean, most of what you're doing and the stuff that we've been talking about uh, that you focus on in your career as a trial lawyer, those are torts, right? You're yeah. litigating torts. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that, and then then we'll go to the reform part.
2: So I'm a I'm a civil lawyer. Um, most people know the difference between criminal and civil, although some acts you can't believe they aren't criminal. Um, <laughs> right. But I am a civil lawyer, which means that uh, you know I represent people for um, wrongdoing. Um, somebody commits a wrong to another, and there's civil liability imposed. That's a tort. Um, and now that wrong can be personal injury, like physical injury, emotional injury, financial injury, financial injury. It could also be the violation of a right, of a civil right. Um, That's a tort as well. And so that's what I do. Uh, I can't, through what I do, send anybody to jail. Um, I usually can't get anybody's business shut down directly, although sometimes indirectly we can do that. Um, We can't, through the civil justice system, typically get somebody's professional license revoked although through enough of our actions, sometimes it happens. Um, what we're left with is, is filing a claim or a lawsuit in civil court and eventually asking a judge or a jury to try to make up for whatever harm and loss our client suffered with money because it's all we're able to do.
0: And so what is the effort uh, to reform the tort system? Who started it? Why is it there, and what are they trying to do?
2: Well, it's you know it's decades of of, of propaganda for sure. I mean, the lobbyists line the halls of you know <laughs> up and down K Street. They line the halls in Frankfurt. Um, it's an effort by by big business, major corporations, insurance companies, big pharma um, to avoid accountability. I, I don't really know any other way to say it other than that our system of justice is imperfect, but it is the best we have. Most countries don't have jury systems, um, because they're so powerful. And those in positions of power are terrified of juries. Um, there are only two places in, in, in the, in the world, in our country and, that the people, regardless of financial status or age or gender or disability to places where all voices are equal. And that's a voting booth and a jury box. Um, and jurors are the ones who consistently hold big corporations and insurance company and those accountable for their actions. Um, and so a long time ago, um, the, the uh, process started to try to defund trial lawyers and um, and create tort reform, quote-unquote tort reform, um, by those big corporations and insurance companies, big pharma, so that they could be held less accountable for what they do.
1: And it usually comes in the form of, like, limitations on damages you can recover and forced
2: arbitration. That's a big one that we're dealing with right now that if we can put in the fine print that you're not, that you're giving up your right to a jury trial and that we can force you into arbitration with, um, you get, you get to help pick your arbitrator, but guess what? It's basically like three foxes, um, to choose for your hen house. I mean, that's what it is really. If uh, forced arbitration is a big one, um, caps on damages is a big one. Um, and eliminating causes of action entirely, class actions. I mean, class actions—they get made fun of a lot in the in the media because it's like, well, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people, and they're all getting two dollars from their uh, whatever this class action is, and it's just the lawyer who's getting rich. And and in reality, that's not the case. Um, class actions allow a lot of people with smaller damages to be able to fight. Um, the powers that be, whereas if it were just them and their ten dollar loss, they wouldn't be able to. The company would get away with whatever they did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, when you band them all together, it makes it a more viable case. Right, because so. I mean,
1: tr- a trial lawyer costs money. It costs money to litigate, yeah. and when you when you work on a contingency basis, you need some kind of recovery. And if the only damage your client suffered was fifteen dollars, then you, you know you're not going to suffer much. So, yeah. I mean, you're not going to re- recover much. Well,
0: meanwhile, a corporation could defraud for a hundred thousand people right, out, of of out of fifteen dollars at a time. Time and you—if you, right. you don't—if you can only do it one at a time, there's really no recourse, right? That's, yeah. that's
2: exactly right. right. So, uh, so yeah, the process started, and you know, in in our age, I like to to call whether it's true or not. I I think it it's mostly true that sort of the beginning of the end. Uh, for us as trial lawyers in terms of being um, of having a clean slate or an even playing field in the courtroom was was the hot coffee case no, it was still because alubic. it yeah. Yeah. because it became such a phenomenon um, and uh, and ever since that time you know, we've we've been fighting this myth of, of trial lawyers being the devil and of there being so many frivolous lawsuits filed and um, and that, That's been a a long and well-financed machine from big, big corporations yep. and insurance well, that was
0: companies. the best 2 hours worth of, of coffee sales that McDonald's ever spent
1: probably one of the big myths is this frivolous lawsuit myth like mm-hmm. like the juries like the the court system doesn't have a method of getting rid of fr- frivolous lawsuits already you try to tell people there's already a way to get rid of truly frivolous lawsuits like judges will dismiss them if they're truly frivolous the, they don't get through and yet this idea that every lawsuit is just this, this uh, um, you know, made up thing and they just waltz in and they get handed millions of dollars. And that myth is per- like crazy persistent.
0: Well, let's yeah, talk just, about that I'm because saying, you mentioned you, you talked about your experience with at least one medical malpractice case. Sure. And that's something that's within your practice area. It I mean, is. And this is the thing that, I mean, I hear the lobbies beat the drum about all the time is that you know this this is this is what's driving up medical Mm -hmm. costs right these frivolous lawsuits that plaintiffs the greedy plaintiffs lawyers are bringing on behalf of all these doctors are clients Mm -hmm. and it's just costing doctors so much money and driving up insurance rates and talk a little bit about that and what your sure. experience with that has been. And in particular, how you screen cases to decide if you're even going to take a medical malpractice case or not.
2: Okay. Well, so I'm sort of a data nerd. Um, when you get up to Frankfurt and you, you listen to testimony in support of or against certain bills, you hear a lot of anecdote. Um, and that has its place as well, of course. But I'm really big on the data. If there are studies out there from reputable sources, if there are peer-reviewed journals, if, if Harvard comes out with the study, generally it's been done right, <laughs> that sort of thing. And so we started looking at this data years ago when the push for um, tort reform first started wearing its head in Kentucky. And um, what we learned through... The, the data from, um, the Institute of Medicine, from Harvard, um, even the AMA, um, is that somewhere between 200 and 400,000 people every year, um, die as a result of preventable medical error. Um, uh, that's you said that,
1: 200 to 400,000.
2: Yeah. A year. Okay. That's okay. A lot in, of people. in Kentucky, that's uh, a little over 2,700 a year die from die. From preventable medical error. Yeah, not just and maimed or. Not just or, maimed or severely yeah. injured in some way, shape, or form, but that's actual deaths. And what we know, um, this is just objective data from the Department of Insurance, there's less than 500 claims filed every year in Kentucky, and that's actually decreasing over the last decade. So. Um, so let's looking at this just in terms of, is there a problem? Okay. Cause I always like to start with, well, before we start looking for solutions, let's make sure there is a problem and what that problem is. Um, we know that somewhere between 200 and 400,000 people every year die as a result of preventable medical error that puts preventable medical error at somewhere between third and sixth in causes of death in the United States. Um, behind heart disease and cancer, uh, which is shocking. All right. right? Um, and that's also like if putting it in, into, cause that, that's sort of just this, this number that's thrown out there and it's hard to really wrap your head around. But what that actually means is that's like crashing three jumbo jets every single day with no survivors. Okay. So if you think about it, you think if three jumbo jets crashed every single day with no survivors you can be damn sure that the White House would ground all planes and would commission a nationwide investigation into how and why this is happening and figure out how the heck to stop it, right? right. But that's not happening in our country when it comes to preventable medical error. It's just not. Um, and so the real, I guess the real concern is, right, is it is it lawsuits that's the problem or is it? preventable medical error that's the real problem. Um, And so then we started looking at, well, how many lawsuits are being filed, and then how many of those lawsuits are being filed are actual medical negligence lawsuits. And I think I just mentioned the Kentucky stats, but nationally, we know that civil tort, that tort cases, tort cases represent 4.4% of all of the civil Caseload 4.4% or Is that
0: just medical malpractice? No, or no, what, no. Okay. That's, that's all tort s-
2: cases? Tort cases 4.4. 4. Usually it's business against business. Right.
0: Okay. Yeah. Contract dispute. Um, contract and to and wow and That is a really, I did it's not a know shockingly that. shockingly low number. No, that is a number. shockingly low number. You're right.
2: Of that 4.4, 2.8% 4, is medical negligence cases. So that's one tenth of 1% of all tort cases are medical negligence. Right. That's what we're supposed to be. You're right.
1: It is an epidemic.
2: That's what we're supposed to be believing is this epidemic. Right. Um, And so that's just the reality of it. Um, We know that preventable medical error is estimated to cost us up to a trillion dollars a year. Because when you think about it, preventable medical errors, they're being compensated by private health insurance companies and Medicaid and Medicare just because the guy cut off the wrong leg. Medicare, Medicaid, and private health insurance companies are still paying for that care. They're not disallowing well, the bill. Well, because the
1: doctor's still billing them the for it, Because the doctor's still
2: billing yeah. them for it. So that's actually... And then in human cost, of course, the people who aren't able to work anymore and then need to get uh, benefits, disability benefits as a result and whatnot, um, there's such... This, there's just this large human cost to preventable medical error that's estimated to be up to a trillion dollars a year. So... It, it, it so if somebody just doesn't on pick
0: up the tab, we all pick we up all the tab,
2: we all pick up the tab, and so, um, just kind of circling back, just based on the data we have found, there is a big problem, but it's not too many lawsuits being filed, it's too many preventable medical errors. So, before we even get to what a solution is, our argument is there's no problem to begin with, and in fact. The question um, that really we should be asking is one that that, um, and I can't remember the the professor's name from Penn, uh, who studied the issue and and wrote about it. Um, but his his question was, we need to be asking not why there are so many so many medical negligence lawsuits being filed, but why are there so few? Because, for example, in Kentucky, if there's twenty seven hundred deaths. That were caused by preventable medical error, and only you know less than 500 claims filed. What's happening to the other ones? Um, and that's just death. That's not injury. So, um,
0: but isn't it true though that that there are a lot more medical malpractice cases being filed now than there were, say, like 30 years ago? Is that the case or do we No, do we not? Yeah.
2: it's not? And they're declining every year, just 20% in the last year. So, um, and, and, and I'll tell you a big reason why I believe that's true. And you, you asked me to start this conversation. I do handle these cases and I, I handle them both in Indiana and Kentucky. And you, Anybody
0: um, that calls, you probably just take the case and you're like, yeah, we can make millions of dollars.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I wish that were true, but it's not. And in fact, I, I tell you what, it is so heartbreaking to, to listen to a, client, a potential client's story of someone in their family who has died or been severely injured, um, that I, it, you know that it's neglect, um, but, for example, the person wasn't working, so they didn't have any income. And I have to explain to the to the family that under our wrongful death statutes in Kentucky that I'm only able to recover a loss of power to labor and earn. Uh, for the loved one, unless they, you know, suffered some tremendous amount of pain, and sometimes somebody just dies on the operating table, and and I have to explain, you know, I'm sorry that your spouse or your father um, died, and it's very clearly neglect. But in Kentucky, I'm I'm only able to to value his wage loss, and and he was retired and had no power to labor and earn anymore and
1: yeah, the only value um, humans have is as workers is, is, right? is as
2: workers and and uh and it's just it's it's incredibly sad but you know even simple cases like somebody leaving a sponge in you during your surgery um clearly neglect i mean no one would argue that the sponge was supposed to be left in there somebody didn't count now, somebody didn't check and double check. And those are rules that are written into the into the system that you're supposed to do that. And so when a sponge gets left in, very clearly neglect. But typically what happens is they go back in and do a second surgery. They get rid of the sponge. Maybe you spend a week or two in the hospital. You've, you've, you have a bunch of medical bills now unnecessarily piled up, which is really bad for your family. But as a lawyer, when I look at that, I realize that um, it damaged you truly it it caused you pain for an extra couple of weeks it cost you a significant amount of medical bills but even that when um, when faced with what it cost me as a lawyer to bring the case and to litigate the case to a conclusion it is not worth it for the client or for me to take that case clear neglect clear damage but it's not worth it to take the case because at the end of the day, the client will be left with little to nothing. Because it costs that much. So it, it really is frustrating for Why? me Why is hear. it so
0: expensive, though? Why?
2: Well, in Kentucky, we have to hire medical experts to tell us before a case is even filed. And this is one of those checks and balances that's built into the court system. We have what's called Rule 11, and that's a, it's essentially a sanctions rule. It says that we can't, as lawyers, when we sign our name to a complaint, we have to have a reasonable basis to believe that that tort, exists that that wrongdoing happened. And in medical cases, we are held to a higher standard even. I can't look at a medical record and say that I think that this neglect took place. I have to hire a doctor or a nurse, depending on what the situation is, to review those records and tell me. Now, typically, those records are thousands of pages long because somebody's in the hospital and you want your expert to see the condition your client was in before, during, and after. Well, to have a medical expert review thousands of pages of records and then render an opinion and give you a report, in my experience, costs several thousands of dollars just to screen the case. And I lose untold amounts of money just screening cases every year for cases that I'll never take. Um, I have right that because this is
0: something that that that, I mean most working class clients can realistically pay for they right? cannot. especially not when they got a mountain of medical debt that they're looking yeah. at
2: they cannot and um, and so that that's number one is that for me to even agree to have a case reviewed I have to have a there has to be significant damages can't be one of the sponges that Person got better after a week or two, and I know that that seventy five thousand dollars in bills is a lot to you, but I know it's going to cost me that to get the case to trial. So there has to be significant damages, and then there also has to be a a pretty compelling um, story there, some some reason to believe that the doctor or nurse or medical provider breached the standard of care. So um, it is really frustrating for me as a practitioner to to hear the frivolous lawsuit myth when it comes to medical negligence cases. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know about slip and falls or, or, or you know, fender benders. I don't know about those things. i it, it, I know the data says that in medical negligence cases, at least according to the Harvard University study, 97% of those are meritorious. Okay, there's always going to be bad apples. There's going to be bad lawyers. There's going to be bad doctors. There's going to be bad building contractors. There are going to be those of us out there who maybe don't know what they're doing and file a lawsuit without uh, merit. Um, But in medical negligence cases... Yeah,
1: let's say me. Let's say say Joe. Okay, so Joe,
2: that that may happen. Um, I can tell you that... I have not seen it happen in the medical negligence room, um, just because we would go out of business. Right. We would we would bankrupt I, I'm like ourselves. You, I've never
0: seen a frivolous uh, medical case actually filed like in the wild. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm sure, I've read it, it, stories about them. Well, I guess
1: I, I think you you but articulated quite well that there's lots of. Meritorious claims that never get filed. Absolutely. that's the real problem is that it's not frivolous. It's the the claims with merit just never get in front of a judge or in front of a jury ever
2: that that's true. And you know the, so talking about data in Colorado, they did a they did a study, and they they' all these they were up to what was it forty a week? what we call wrong-sight, wrong-side surgeries. So literally someone operates on the wrong arm or the wrong leg or the wrong side of the brain. I mean, those are just shocking mistakes that happen. And even in those surgeries, those wrong-sight, those wrong-side wrong situations, 21% of people file claims. Only 21% of people filed claims in wrong-sight, wrong-side. I mean, that, that is the basic breach of the standard of care and even then you aren't getting people who are being properly compensated
0: so Uh. you've got a head full of facts that i think are really really compelling on this issue you've been involved in lobbying efforts Mm -hmm. with legislatures here in kentucky and i'm sure elsewhere does anyone care about your facts i mean do legislatures (laughs) care i mean do, do 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 juries care do people care about this stuff
2: yeah it it's hard i again, one one thing I've learned over the last couple, not even couple, it's been longer than that, of testifying um, in front of our Senate and House committees on the issue here in Kentucky, there are intelligent questions being asked. um, But the reality is the insurance industry has, and the nursing home industry, has poured just so much money, so much money into these candidates. um, And I've, I, you know, I'm so naive. I like to believe. I I grew up in this very small town in Indiana. I, I wanted to believe that that those sorts of things are just what you see on in the movies and uh, House of Cards, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, but but when when companies and organizations give that amount of money, they want something in return. Um, and so that's what we have seen is it's been very difficult to, to overcome that. However, um, we have pushed back on some of that with the data. So it's easy to say we're driving doctors out of Kentucky. That's an, that's something that we hear a lot, right? Well, if we don't pass this tort reform, then we're going to lose all of our doctors. They're fleeing the state for states that have tort reform enacted. And uh, the data tells us that that's just flat false. Um, Kentucky has more doctors per capita than all the surrounding states that have enacted tort reform. the, the another myth is that their premiums are being driven sky high and that if we would just enact some tort reform, then the pre, the doctor's premiums would be lowered and they would be satisfied and and that's just a that's a that's a lie that the insurance industry tells their insureds and I feel sad for the doctors who hear that and believe it. but the reality is in Texas, California, Indiana, the states that have had these measures in place for more than a decade, uh, there has been no appreciable change in, in premiums for those doctors and medical providers. It's it's just a lie that they tell them to get on board, and it's unfortunate. Nobody likes to be lied to.
0: What is wrong with the idea that we should put an absolute dollar value, even if it's $2 million, it's $5 million, something like mm-hmm. that, uh, put an absolute cap on the amount of money that a jury can award? Mm-hmm. Would your dairy farmer... Have been um, okay with a million instead of six million. Right?
2: He, he would have lost his farm. Right. He would have lost his farm, um, and that's what the date again. Going, but just going back to the facts, just going back to the data. Um, it, caps on damages don't do anything to prevent this alleged frivolous lawsuit situation um, that doesn't exist. But it it just hurts the most damaged people. It really does. It hurts the elderly. Um, It hurts um, men and women who um, go from a high earning capacity to none. Um, It it puts a a situation where a single mom um, or, let's just say, a stay-at-home mom who who actually doesn't have earning capacity um, because she's stayed at home. But maybe she's a lawyer, so maybe she could earn, but she wasn't earning at the time um it it, the caps would affect the ability of her family to recover um it's just it's one of those situations where you've got 12 jurors or six depending on your jurisdiction who are the only ones who are able to hear all the facts from start to finish they're the only ones and it's a really neat and special thing so you've got people you're peers your community members who listen to all the facts from start to finish they're the only ones who hear it not a politician sitting in frankfurt not me or you just them and then they get to decide what they feel is proper compensation for the wrong and who are we or politicians or anyone to tell them the only ones who've heard all the facts that they're wrong Sorry that you felt that it was five million dollars, but our arbitrary cap that we placed sitting here in the in the halls of congress we're gonna we're gonna deny you that. Um, you know we allow people to decide whether citizens live or die. Can we not entrust them to make the right decision for what is the proper amount to compensate for harm and loss? Um, but again, it just goes back to it, it isn't it isn't the small claims that are, that that cap um, is going to hurt. It's it's the catastrophic, severely injured, brain damaged children who need a life of care, um, and and people who are, are dead or or so severely injured that they cannot work, um, putting their families at a risk of being unfortunately on government aid for the rest of their lives. We've seen that happen in, in tort reform states. And for those who profess to be for small government and limited government control and intervention, um, to to step on one of our most fundamental rights. Or individual rights. rights um, or individual rights, absolutely. right? Even if you're
0: the rugged individualist type.
2: Of course. And
0: that's, you know, that's what I'm sitting here thinking. Like, how do you I mean people have been convinced that they should support measures that take power away from themselves right right Right. like you said at the top of the hour that that this is you know the only place where you're really equal everybody's really equal and we're going to take that power away from ourselves by allowing a legislature to cap the amount that we can award to to fellow citizens who've been injured that's nuts Right. It's, it's crazy it's, when you think about it, it in the is. abstract, but I mean everybody here in this room agrees with me. So that's it's easy for us to say. And, and and when these folks have been sold on a very very when most folks have been sold on a very long con, you know, a decades long con. And for you, in I mean, one of your many hats is is um, as VP of the Kentucky Justice Association. So you guys are sort of railing against tort reform all the time. What's the messaging? How do you approach that? How do you educate people?
2: I truly believe to my core. Like I said, I grew up I grew up in a very conservative small town in Indiana. Um, my family is still all very extremely conservative, and. My clients live, many of my clients live in very conservative jurisdictions, um, but but the, the one thing that I know is that nobody likes to be tricked. Nobody likes to be lied to or conned. And when you educate people, when you truly educate them about what this means, people don't go for it. They don't go for the swindle. Um, and so, I think our job as the Justice Asso- Kentucky Justice Association is to just get the message out as widespread as we can about what this really means. We don't have to sugarcoat it or put it in some fancy package. We just have to tell the truth. And again, it's just an education campaign. It's not. It's it's not a persuasion at all. It's it's just this is what this means. I think
1: yeah I think it's pretty if you connect the dots for people and show them how the con works they figure it out on their own they do because right? people
0: I mean, are not stupid right. I mean that's a lot of those are a lot of dots to connect though. it can
1: be sure and if you're yeah. mass
0: media messaging and this is this is mm-hmm. what i'm I'm hung up on is that if you're doing this mass media you really got to get this across in a you know thirty second or less sound bite yeah. you know or just a one page ad that catches somebody's attention. I mean, well, what's can, the message? Yeah, you can can't you, connect all those dots in 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 a full page ad. You can't.
2: It's pretty tough, but I, you know. So, I talk to people a lot about, and I, I have good friends who are uh, who disagree with me about. Um, Certain constitutional rights and and what they mean the Second Amendment, and the First, and um, that's easy. And, those two are it, unlimited. Th- There's no two, limits, right, There's limits right. on all the but,
0: other ones, but not those two.
2: But but, but those two and and even the Fourth and the the Eighth. Um, but uh, but I, I for example with medical review panels, um, one of the things that I'm that I I just posed the question in a debate once. Well, like what if before. You were able to purchase a gun that, and this is for very you know proponents of the Second Amendment and um, and that being a uh, a limitless right. Suppose before you purchased your gun, you had to um, to go through a panel, and they got to decide whether or not it was okay for you to purchase one. You had to wait six months in order to do it. Um, and then this is a panel of uh, people who are opposed to gun rights and so and and so it, it it when you start putting it into, because the until you're in the justice system, it's really hard to appreciate. How and why it's needed?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that, it, it I mean unless really you is. expose somebody, John Q. Public, to a catastrophic injury, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you, know, you can't member. do that
1: on a mass scale. And every, as the old adage goes, everybody hates trial attorneys until they need one, right? Until
2: they need one, <laughs> but but they do get the First Amendment and they do get the Second, and so it's it's basically saying all of these rights that were given to us, all all of these are are equal, and if you start eroding our Seventh Amendment right to trial by jury pretty soon. They're going to come after your sixth and your fifth and your fourth and your third. And they're going to come out because once you go down that slippery slope, you shouldn't be shocked when all of your rights are suddenly gone.
1: Right. And and also Um, the Seventh Amendment is a check on a lot of those other rights infringements. That's The magic of our Constitution is all these rights help each other. And they complement each other, and so you start eroding one, and you lose the others.
2: That that's exactly right. Because who's going to, if the jury system is gone, who's going to be there to, um, t- to protect your second and your first when it's been infringed upon? Right. There, there's going to be nothing there to remedy the situation. Well. So that's scary. It is a really scary thing. But the one thing we know is that no accountability means no safety, and the less accountable. Uh, we are as people as corporations as insurance companies the less safe we are as a society in all the states that have enacted tort reform measures um, the mortality rates are higher they get d's and f's in safety ratings for their hospitals and nursing homes they have the highest rate of fines and safety is expensive safety you know safety costs money properly resourcing your nursing homes and hospitals um, implementing the changes i know people laugh at uh, you know, travelers are the reasons we have airbags and the reasons we have seatbelts, and uh, right. And, Thanks you know and and so um, and that that's the same for hospitals and nursing homes as well. And there are ways there are there really are ways to reduce the small number of negligence medical negligence lawsuits. Um, proven ways to do that that also increase patient safety, for example. Our VA in Lexington um, is a national model for that. Uh, they they uh, instituted this. Um, it's essentially a, it was a project to uh, to fess up immediately when they knew that there was a problem to tell the family what that problem was and, and what harm resulted from it, and to quickly pay a fair amount. And that sounds
1: like accountability.
2: And Unbelievable, right? And amazingly enough, that alone, just fessing up and offering fair compensation reduced the average settlement to $15,000 for the VA in Lexington as compared to $98,000 nationally. Wow. Um, Another example of that is the closed claim project. Um, Back in the 70s, anesthesiologists were the most high-risk specialty in the country. Um, They accounted for some seven and a half percent of all negligence lawsuits just against the anesthesiologist. And so whatever their national institute was and and I can look it up, but they instituted a closed claim project where they analyzed, over the course of a few years, all the data from the lawsuits that were filed. And they, they found systemic failures and problems that existed. And they were able to, based on that lawsuit data, correct a lot of systemic failures and problems that existed. And again, once all that was done, they found that their negligence rates dropped in more than half and they because of that their malpractice premiums were able to adjust and lower for and and that in, it increased one of every 10,000 patients before that had a had a preventable medical error due to anesthesiology failure and that went to one in two hundred thousand after that closed claim project I mean that is real. Real solutions,
0: right? Real facts real, and real, real solutions. data driving. And it turns out, taking
1: yeah. better care of people and being—it's
2: amazing—more wow.
1: responsible in how you care for them prevents the problem of lawsuits. It's
2: amazing how I that know. works. <laughs> yes. Adequately oh, it's resourcing, nuts. staffing, training—it's amazing what that does to lower claims.
0: Let's right. do listener questions. Listener questions. Uh, A couple of listener questions this time around. One is from Shannon. Everybody knows Shannon. We love Shannon. Hey, Shannon. Um, Shannon asks, uh, and (laughs) Shannon full well knows the answer to this question, but I don't know. Maybe he's (laughs) testing you. Is there any data on out-of-control verdicts? Has anyone ever looked at that? Is there any data in Kentucky? What does it indicate?
2: I think Shannon knows the answer to that, considering he's the... I just want to know, how do you
1: define an out-of-control verdict? Is that a verdict that just keeps getting bigger over I time? I define it as a yeah. zero. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah, what's that? An out-of-control verdict. Well, the, you know, the reality is that 97% means I didn't have control
0: of, over it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's exactly yeah. right. That's a right. verdict you had no control over. Um, you know, 97% of cases resolve prior to trial. So there's only statistically less than 3% of cases actually get tried. Um, and then typically, it's the ca- the cases that are that are being tried are the ones where um, there's just been an unreasonable valuation of the damage. Okay, um, no, there's no data on that. I mean, there is data on it, and and Shannon can tell you that there is no evidence that they're out of control. Verdicts in Kentucky. I mean, don't. And don't if anything, med
1: pla- most Med Mal plaintiffs actually lose at trial. Isn't that true? I've seen those statistics that say like very few plaintiffs actually win at trial.
2: W- well, uh, once the cases get to a trial, that's true. Um, the vast number of cases. M- Resolve before trial even gets there. Sure. Once it's there, and there are a lot of reasons why that's true, and I think we can cloud the issue. Those of us who've tried medical negligence cases and have talked to jurors afterward, um, there is a there's a big uh, misperception, and I think it's a lot of our fault as lawyers who don't properly educate jurors. But jurors want to see intention um, sure. out of doctors. They want if if a doctor breached the standard of care and messed up and made a mistake and caused damage, uh, for a lot of jurors, that's not enough. Um, they want to see an intentional act or a reckless act. Either a doctor was drunk or, um, you know, they, sometimes they, they cut off the wrong leg and they, they, want it to be that, just bad. so
1: egregious just so that, it's, egregious, obvious, that yeah. it's
2: obvious. And, and that's hard. And that's a, what we have, have come to find out, um, it, those of us who've studied uh, jurors and, and done jury research over the last decade, of which I'm one, um, that's a phenomenon that we have to do better at as lawyers and educating the jurors, that, that that's not the standard. Um, and, and, another, and another thing is, and I don't want to get too deeply into juror psychology, but it, we see it a lot in medical negligence cases. It's that, it's, that um, it's very difficult to want to believe that a medical provider messed up because we all depend on them um we don't want to believe it could be us or our family member and so a coping mechanism that's the neuroscience just sort of bears out is that it's easier for us to deny that mm-hmm. things like that happen yeah. than it is to accept that they do and fairly compensate for it that's another thing we battle against a lot and so um Again, not not to get too deeply into why we lose a lot once they get to trial, but those are a couple of reasons why. um, Sure. Um,
0: Joanne, listener Joanne asks, How do we overcome the stereotype that lawyers are just in it to make money? I think tort reform has a lot of that misconception at the root of it. And yeah, I mean, I suppose that's, that's not, well, I don't, I don't know if that's at the root of it, but it certainly is what is driving the popularity of tort reform, right? You know, greedy lawyers, you've got this narrative, this story that you can tell about greedy lawyers. Um, how do you work against that?
2: I mean, it's, it's tough. And, as a, and a greedy just, lawyer yourself. As a greedy lawyer myself, right. Uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's 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 definitely hard for those who um, who just hear those sound bites and mm-hmm. and and get that from the media. Um, and to be frank with you, Dan and Joe, um, I have I have traveled to a lot of conferences and been around a lot of nationally renowned trial lawyers, and they don't help the narrative. At all, um, they really, <laughs> I've
1: met some trial lawyers. Uh,
2: yeah, they, they don't they don't help the narrative. But just as and I, just as there are those lawyers out there, and they are they are few and far between. They do exist. There are just as there are bad doctors out there who constitute the most of the negligence claims. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, honestly, the, the most negligence claims in Kentucky come from a couple of handfuls of doctors, the bad apples. Um, Just like there are unscrupulous building contractors when the vast majority are not. There are really bad nursing homes, but there are some that are really good. You know, just like that, there are going to be bad lawyers. Um, That is not the majority. That's not the reality. Most of us, and I can say this um, with pride because of my position with KJA, and and, and there's 1,400 of us across the state. I've met um, most of us. Uh, are in it for all the right reasons. Um, We're smart. Um, We could have gotten jobs at big firms making a big salary right out of law school and paying our student loan debt off. And um, there were a lot of easier ways to make money um, coming out of school. And um, most of us just have that thing inside of us that knows right and wrong and wants to be on the right side um, of that V. And I mean, I've been driven, and I'm, I'll just be honest. I, you know, my, we we've been driven to the brink of bankruptcy trying to. My husband and I, both being plaintiffs lawyers, trying to finance cases, um, uh, taking cases that we believed in, that we knew at the end of the day had very little chance of a huge monetary success, but just believing in it so much. Um. And so it does become personal to me to hear that, um, because I know, and I know my colleagues, and I know the struggle, and I know the suicide rate. Yeah, I mean, in <laughs> um, the
0: business, yeah, in the, and in, in the business, I think you hear a lot more stories about yeah. that kind of self sacrifice than you do about the greedy lawyers. I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe not. You
2: do, and and um, I know that yeah, I'm, I'm part of the American Association for Justice, and and we put together a group or a subset of the organization called Trial Lawyers Care, and there's a we have a website and. Um, and it was, it was designed to help the public understand that there, there is more to us, um, than what they see. I, I will be completely honest with you. Most of the, and I'm involved in a lot of different nonprofits and, uh, charitable ventures. And most of the, of the folks who sit on the boards or who volunteer or who quietly give their money or, um, quietly participate in this Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is, they're they're lawyers. They're trial lawyers. Um, They're my friends, my colleagues. Nobody hears about that. Nobody hears those things. Nobody hears about um, the pro bono hours that you put in all the time, the weekends that you give up with your family, um, the the nights that you wake up in cold sweats and with nightmares. Nobody hears those things. Um, All they hear is that you're out for money, and it and unless you're in it, I, I suppose it's hard to not believe that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because well, that's a what tra- successful long con. It is a successful yeah.
2: long con. You know, and it started uh, as an organization. We're very bi- we're very bipartisan. We have Republican and Democrat trial lawyers on. Um, we have trial lawyers on both sides and. But it's long been known that labor organizations and trial lawyers are the biggest funders of the Democratic Party. Um, And so the vilification of trial lawyers started uh, decades ago um, from the Republican Party to try to defund us so that we wouldn't have any money to fund opposing candidates. And unfortunately, even though we have wonderful Republican trial lawyers on our side now, and we're making inroads into that party, we're, we're just trying to beat back, um, this perception that has persisted for so long. We're so far behind the eight ball with that. But I think, we're starting to improve, at least here in Kentucky. Longest
0: <laughs> journey start with single step, I guess. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so,
0: all right. Well, that's a good place to wrap up, I think. Um,
1: yeah, on that high note. Yeah.
2: Okay, here we go. It's hard to have a high note when you're talking about taking away people's rights.
0: There's not many high notes in the show, but, but I bet that our esteemed producer, Martin French, will be able to put some happy music at the end that will make <laughs> everybody feel a little bit better about themselves. And so listen, we've been talking today with Vanessa Cantley, who uh, is a Renaissance woman and is a, a, a trial lawyer extraordinaire. Um, And she is working against the tort reform movement, uh, both here and nationally, and doing a hell of a job at it. Uh, Vanessa, where can people find out more about you and your efforts?
2: Well, our website is KentuckyInjuryLaw.com. That's a good place to start, but I'm always happy to take questions uh, by email or phone. I'm Vanessa at BCCNLaw.com. Um, and my phone number is 502-587-2002. And, uh, again, even if it's just a question about uh, whether somebody has a cause of action or w- what I think about, I'm always happy to take the call. And, and
0: Yeah, be uh, careful. You get a couple of calls from our listeners, and, yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, 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 no. it's a ragtag group. Joe Dunman is doing the uh, Heightened Scrutiny podcast. That I am. He now, uh, now has 7,000 episodes because it's all that he does. Six um, and a half. And... <laughs> and and uh, you can find that at, uh, what, what is it? Scrutinypod.com. All right. And uh, Martin, what do you got? What are you doing? I'm taking up freelance surgery. Taking up freelance <laughs> surgery? Very good. Uh, Frivolously. Vanessa. <laughs> Vanessa. Right. <laughs> Someone will be calling Vanessa wrong about Wrong side. Wrong side. Uh, hey, look. It. Our, our <laughs> We've got this documentary. Uh, it's called Love v. Kentucky. Oh, it's you can good. go to lovevkentucky.com. And uh, it's still on the
2: IMAXs. Yeah.
0: We had to see it <laughs> one, one agonizing time on the IMAX. And if you've never wanted to see, you know, uh, if you if you've ever wanted to see uh, my my head so gigantic <laughs> that you could actually dive into one of my pores. Um, yeah, not and, metaphorically. Yeah, no, no, uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> physically gigantic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's, that's going on. Love Kentucky.com. Go check that out. Uh, it's, it is educating and enlightening and entertaining. Yeah. Very funny. And, and uh, tough. and Vanessa referred to the documentary hot coffee. Go see that. You can, you can get that on YouTube. You can probably get it on Amazon or one of the Netflix other streaming services too, too. too. Yeah. In and out of Netflix. Um, go check that out for a good overview of what is going on in uh, torts overall uh, in the United States. And anyway, uh, that was Vanessa Cantley, and we love her, and we love you, and we will see you the next time. Bye. Goodbye. I hear the collective groan of the peer-reviewed academics that listen to this show. (laughs) There's at least one, I know.